Hello everybody, this is Lisa and this is Carolyn and this is our first episode of the Let It Brain podcast. And we are so excited to have you with us today. It is our first podcast. So let me give you a quick rundown of how we're hoping to do things. So basically we have one big interview at the end where we interview an expert in the field and learn about what their research is and what the cutting edge stuff in their field is. But uh, we understand that not everybody in our audience is going to um, know about the field. So that's why we spend the first 20, 30 minutes giving a bit of an introduction to the field. And uh, what we hope is that no matter what level you are in uh, your learning journey, you can get something out of this. And if you're already an expert, you can just skip right to the interview. And um, yeah, that's how it's done. That is how it's done. And the subject of this episode are bats. And in this introduction, we want to tell you how they live, where they live, and what great animals they are. Yes. Okay. So we did a lot of research, the both of us. And um, maybe we'll start off with some evolution and ecology. Yeah, and I think you read something about that, right? I did, and I actually found a lot of, well, debate or controversy in this, okay. which is always fun in science, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I learned is that there's these two suborders of bats, and they're called the microchiroptera. So that you've got the micro and the macro, or the megabats and the microbats. And the megabats do not echolocate except for one genus which does and then the microbats they do echolocate whereas most megabats they don't right so um traditionally it was thought that these are these two monophyletic groups so what that means is um a monophyletic group is all the descendants in a phylogenetic tree and the common ancestor and um there's that, that that was the traditional view, but now there's these molecular studies out there, and they say that the microchiroptera are paraphyletic. Um, so you've got the yinterochiroptera, and those are the non-echolocating bats, except for one microbat family, which is also a part of that family. And then you've got the yangochiroptera, yang and those are the remaining echolocating bats. So you've got yin and, yin and yang. Basically, That's so right? Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I kinda like it because with the yin and yang symbol you've got yeah. like a little bit of black in the white and a little bit of white in the black and with the yin tera terra you've got one microbat in the big Oh I see. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I also wonder do the yin terapteras live under light? conditions and the young terrors <laughs> under dark conditions i don't think so but how cool would that be that right would because be awesome. that would so work out um but if they do let us know yeah um, please do so <laughs> <laughs> but i doubt it so um right so the um idea is if they are paraphyletic that suggests that echolocation might have evolved several times um, and that's in contrast to this traditional view, which is that the last common ancestor could echolocate and then just some groups lost that ability. I see. Mm -hmm. So there was a switch in the way of thinking regarding bats. I guess so. And I I'm, I'm think somewhat it's still up for debate as these. I, I don't know. Like we said, correct us if there's now a consensus um, yeah. This is what I found, this traditional view and this other view, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's move on to ecology a little bit. Mm -hmm. So bats are found pretty much everywhere. And this blew my mind. There's over a thousand bat species, and that makes up one-fifth of all mammal species. One-fifth. One-fifth. Whoa. Right. That's crazy, right? Because, yeah. I mean, when I think of the animals I know, I don't or the mammals I know, I don't think of bats yeah. that often. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. But the one-fifth tackles that they have the most species. or Yeah, um, not the most animals. Yes. Like, right. But that's also amazing. It really is, right? So we always forget how diverse the animal kingdom is, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, right, so the only place that they're not found is a few oceanic islands, the Arctic and the Antarctic. And the Yango Chiroptera, they're found pretty much worldwide. And 
yeah, they, they differ in a few ways, like the the yin chiroptera, those are those the fruit bats, they eat mainly fruits and flowers. And then the yangs, they're a little more adventurous, they eat insects. Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. So insects, fruits, pollen, nectar, and get this, fish, frogs, <laughs> oh, <wow>. other bats. <laughs> what? What the hell? I'm just, just imagining a bat eating another bat. That's I mean, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, that's scary. Oh, and blood, right? Um, I guess we always, growing up, before I studied biology, I thought all bats drink blood. Yeah. But um, I guess they're a lot more diverse than that. But there's definitely also those that drink blood. Okay. But uh, I think there are not a lot, right? No, I don't think so. Just a few species who right. actually drink blood. I don't know which ones, but yeah. The the idea is basically there's this huge diversity within bats and how they live and what they eat and cool. what they do. And some echolocate, some don't. And uh, yeah. So let's move on to echolocation. Oh, yeah. That's also such a cool subject because... As a human being, you just navigate through your world using your visual sense. Right. But actually what these bats do is they emit sound waves. Okay. And by the echo of the sound waves um, striking their ear again, mm -hmm. they're navigating through their environment. That's so crazy, right? That's so different from what we experience, right? Absolutely it is. But now these aren't just any sound waves, right? No, these are specifically ultrasonic sound ra sound waves, and they are ranging from 11 kilohertz to 212 kilohertz. Okay, so put that into perspective for me. What can I, as a human, hear? You can hear, as a human, 18 hertz up to 18 kilohertz. Okay, so there's some overlap there, but yeah. not a lot. Yeah, and I don't know if you have ever noticed that, but if you see bats in the summer, during a barbecue and they're flying close to you, you sometimes hear strange crackling noises, like really high-pitched crackling noise, but that's really all you can hear from okay. their vocalizations. I have never noticed, and that's here in Germany, right? That you've noticed that? Yeah. Okay, that is very cool. I will look out for that. And um, why, so th these are ultrasonic waves, yeah. right? Ultrasonic basically means anything we can't hear. I guess? Yeah. Right. Um, so why do they have to be this high frequency? It's, as you mentioned, a lot of bats are insectivorous, mm -hmm. which means that they mainly feed on insects. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, especially they feed on moths. Mm -hmm. And so to make out where exactly the moth or the insect is um, bright now, in place mm -hmm. of course you have to have this ultrasonic frequencies because then you have a high temporal resolution i see so if my sound wave has a higher wavelength than the size of the insect it could just totally pass it by yeah and never notice the insect is there right yeah right like your the signal you're emitting emitting is too broad to catch what you're looking for okay maybe I we see. can put it this way and this is for the insectivorous bats right but i mean they they, they have such a diversity in yeah in what they feed on but i guess the ones that are mainly studied in neuroethology are the insectivorous then right i'm not quite sure i had this lab rotation where we worked with um bats who feed on dilute nectars of plants oh so of course with those who feed on plants it's also um, easy to tackle more ecological questions because okay. often if they feed on plants they are also pollinators for the plants like with bees really yes i never thought of bats as pollinators yeah okay very cool how diverse bats oh. yeah no kidding the other thing i found interesting is these doppler shifts and um how bats use them to detect motion right what have you found on that yeah so um if you have let's let's use the moth example um mm -hmm. and the moth is moving and i'm emitting these echoes at a high frequency if the moth is moving then the the echoes will come back in a doppler shifted way 
And based on that, I will know, okay, there's a moving thing here. And I suppose because when bats fly around, there's this super cluttered environment, right? You've got treetops, you've got plants, you've got other bats, you've got things you may not want to eat. Yeah. And um, being able to detect movement is pretty important for hunting. Yeah. Right? So they can do all that with just just echoes. Yeah. It's crazy. For the ones... Uh, of you who are interested in how sound waves are modulated by the environment, there's an interesting book which I will look up and put in the description of that video. So, if anybody is interested in further reading, that's about great that subject, right? Because we could talk about this for ages. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, just just to quickly touch on a few more things here, um, you've got different types of calls like you've got these um, narrow band and broadband or these frequently modulated or constant frequency can you touch on that a little bit as far as i've understood it is that um, either bats have a constant frequency mm -hmm. where they emit a sound having one frequency which then stays in that same frequency right or you can have this frequency modulated also called frequency modulated sweeps mm -hmm. where they emit a sound but then by emitting the sound they change the frequency during the call okay all right and they can kind of combine these two methods too right yeah okay cool so then um The other thing I thought was really cool is um, I read about the arms race between insects and bats. Okay. Okay. So basically, bats evolved to um, detect these moths, and then the moths evolved to evade the bats. Ah. So, for example, um, the, the, the moths, they'll have a lot of tympani or ears that are tuned to the bat predators. And that was the first way the insects adapted to being eaten. Or some will fly closer to the ground. Or some actually jam the ultrasound signals. Ah, that's cool. And some blend with the background. But then the bats responded to those defense mechanisms with their own mechanisms. Such as changing their pulse as they got closer to make themselves sound farther away. Ah. So I, it's, it's every... Every step of the way, they're adapting and trying to outsmart each other. Yeah. It's like this arms race, and it's kind of exciting. <laughs> right. So it's it seems to me similar to the arms race um, humans have with parasites. Ah. Because I think I've heard this in an ecological lecture. Mm -hmm. Like, often in evolution, or not just humans, all animals which the parasites inhibits mm -hmm. so they often change or come up with some mechanisms to get rid of the parasites and then the parasite ah, yeah. evolves again to still can sneak into the body of the animal or the human right and so it's seems quite similar with bats and moths right and, and i'm sure those are that isn't the only example yeah that's right. so cool evolution right? is so smart yeah right Cool. Just by try and error, which I really love about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving on to some philosophy. Yeah. A is... cool question which you also yeah. asked in yeah. our interview. I did. And um, I'm just going to put this out there right now. I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> so <laughs> I am going to grossly misrepresent it. And I apologize in advance. <laughs> But I had to touch on this particular paper because it's Thomas... Nagel, what is it like to be a bat? Right, so so it's this essay where he tries to understand the big question of consciousness. And um, he famously makes the statement that an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism. So he calls that the subjective character of experience. So um, let me let me put that in clearer terms. Um, if there's this unique experience of what it is to be Lisa, then, <laughs> then there is something, then there is a thing of being a Lisa. I, I, yeah. Does that make sense? I, uh, for me, it makes sense. But yeah. I'm looking at you the way I'm looking at you because I thought that Mr. Thomas Nagel 
had a quite anthroposophic view mm-hmm. on the term consciousness. Yeah, right. So there's some criticism of how he... Um, I mean, there's some criticism on this essay, but basically he uses, um, just to quickly go into mm-hmm. what he talks about, he uses the metaphor of bats to um, clarify this distinction between the subjective and objective con- concepts. Um, they're mammals, so he assumes they're conscious, and they're highly evolved, and they have this sense that is totally different from us, right? Yeah. We can't possibly understand what it is like to um, have ultrasonic vision, yeah. Right. And even if we think about what it would be like, we can only ever see that from a human perspective. Yeah. Right. I can think about what it would be like to have ultrasonic vision, but it would be from my human perspective. I would frame it in terms of what I already know as a human. Yeah, you're right. But what it is like to be a bat, that is only for a bat to know. Yeah. And that is his basic um, conclusion there. Right. But I think that's the thing you also have to remember by studying neuroethology in different species, right? Right. Because you can't put your beliefs of how you as a human Mm -hmm. being understand the world into analyzing how an animal might observe its surrounding. That is such a good point. I think that's the main point. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And um, but one of the criticisms um, comes from Daniel Dennett, and he says that um, there are still, I mean, any interesting or theoretically important features of a bat's consciousness are still um, accessible to third party observ- uh, third person observation. So it's still worth studying, right? I, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a bat, yeah. But I do know that um, they are able to. Um, see things that are this many centimeters big. Yeah. So these are definitely claims I can make. Yeah. So it's not like it's totally futile to study this and to study it from a scientific way. Yeah. But But I think maybe they're talking about different things. I have the feeling as well, yeah. Because maybe um, Thomas Nagel stated it harshly, but I don't think that he as an author thought... Nobody should study animals with other sensory modalities right. than they have on their own. Right. Probably he just wanted to um, sensibilize scientists yeah. to think about, right. hey, remember, you don't exactly know how it feels like to be a bat. Right. Right. And yeah. try to take that into your work. Yeah. So maybe I misunderstood Daniel Dennett as well there. And like I said, uh, not a philosopher. Please correct me if I'm wrong or, um, yeah, always open to learning. Yeah. So um, that brings us to our next question. Why study echolocation if it's a sense we humans don't possess? I mean, if the end goal is to understand the human brain, yeah. why are we studying bats? I guess as a neuroscientist, it's always fascinating to find animals who are perfectly tuned to their environment and have specialized senses mm-hmm. which is for bats echolocation which is the auditory system right and by studying their ability to echolocate and how their auditory system contributes to disability we also can learn a lot more about how it works for us in a less specialized manner. Right. So I was reading that a lot of what we learned about the auditory system actually came from studying the barn owl, Mm -hmm. right, which is not human, but they're very good at using precise information um, from in in their auditory system. And that has helped us understand sensory maps and all sorts of things. So I guess that's kind of the neural neuroethological perspective rather than taking the model organisms you want to take the organism that is the absolute best at hearing yeah and then we can really understand the auditory system so it's yeah i mean we're definitely biased here as neuroethologists <laughs> yeah, probably we are <laughs> but i mean it's always made sense to me right i mean mice are great and i get that they're easy to breed and There's a lot of information on them, but when you're using them to study vision and their eyes are like not the best, what are we really learning? Is it really 
transferable to humans. Yeah, that's right. Right. But that's a general question, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I think in a um, abstract way, mm -hmm. all that we learn from animals can be plus minus be also seen in humans. Right. Because uh, even though there's many methods maybe at arriving at the same solution in the brain, there's not an infinite number of solutions yes. either. Right. But you had a good point by stating that for studying the vision, maybe an eagle or an yeah. animal with has a really good vision system would mm -hmm. be more adequate right. than mice, for example. I mean, if we stuck with uh, giant squids, I guess we would just think that all axons are really, really, really big, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, That's if right. we didn't look and do a comparative approach, then yeah, we'd sing. We, we, we yeah. <laughs> I think I remember something which was called August Crow principle. Crow's principle. Yeah, I read about that too. Can you? Um, that principle states that for each biological question, there's like one model organism mm -hmm. which can be used to tackle this biological question. The best one, so to say. Yes. So bats are definitely up there for the auditory system. Yes. Cool. Okay. Like a plesia for memorizing stuff, right? <laughs> which you won't have thought of. No. If you are no biologist. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, before we jump into the interview, the last thing I want to talk about a little is multisensory integration. Mm -hmm. So now we're moving a little bit more into the neural side of things. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yes. So just to um, touch on multisensory integration or multi multimodal integration, it's also called. What we mean with that is um, when two senses combine to uh, form a percept in the mind. So, um, for example, if you have fireworks outside, it's not just a visual thing, yeah. you hear it too. And those two things interact, and then your brain can say, okay, that's definitely fireworks, Yeah. right? Versus if you just saw it and didn't hear it, maybe your brain would be like, well, what's going on there? Yeah. Or maybe you only heard it and you didn't see it. But the combination of those two senses is what helps you... Um, get more reliable information from your environment, right? And um, what's interesting about that, too, is this concept of dynamic weighting. Oh, what's that? Okay, so um, it's using the sense that gives you the best information in a context, okay? So let's say it is dark in a room. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, let's start over. Um, usually we humans, we're very vision-based, right? So... Um, if I am out in daylight and I see you, mm -hmm. I'm going to use my visual sense to say, okay, there's Lisa, right? Yeah. But um, now let's say it's nighttime. And I say Marco. <laughs> 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 then you say what? Polo. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> right. Um, I'm going to rely on your voice more because... I mean, I won't be able to make out your face. So my brain is going to switch to, okay, Carolyn, use your hearing to make sure that's Lisa. I'm yeah. still going to use some of my vision, but I'm going to dynamically weigh my hearing to be the more reliable sense in the dark. Yeah. But when it's light out, I'm going to dynamically weigh my vision to be more important. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just a way your um, brain can be more accurate. Okay, so I just want to give a quick introduction on our special guest this episode. He's a German professor, Uwe Fürzlaff. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Uwe Fürzlaff, he um, is in the chair of zoology under Harald Luksch at the Technische University of Munich. And his study mainly focuses on the neural basis of bad sonar and neural mechanisms of vocal learning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and he targets a lot of his questions with a species that's called Philostomus discolor. About the species, I want to say something because it's very cool in my opinion. 
So it mainly occurs in the northern parts of Southern America. Mm-hmm. It's an omnivore species and I really like that. It mainly focuses on plants, but mm-hmm. depending on the habitat it lives in, it can also um, rely on insects. Oh, no way. Yeah, so I really liked it because later on you will hear we also talked about diversity, which we already did in this introduction. So it's quite cool to see how animals can adapt. Mm -hmm. They forage in groups up to 12 individuals Mm -hmm. and they are thought to show acoustic learning. What's meant with acoustic learning? Acoustic learning is something... I learned it in my lectures mainly for birds. Okay. Like if an infant bird can't sing and then the adult bird shows him how to sing. Mm-hmm. And birds, as far as I remember it, have to learn it in a really specific phase I of see. growing up. Yeah. And so it's a behavior which isn't just there by genetics, but an infant really has to learn it from an adult. Okay, so I'd say this was us and the introduction. Yes, I and think we hopefully covered it all. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> if we don't have, please write us a comment and let us know. We're always thankful for feedback. Definitely. I mean, this is our first podcast, so I do feel like we're still on a learning journey on yeah. how to make this great for all of you and how to give you the best possible most interesting um, information and um, that um, can only be done with you as an audience really giving us some feedback and I had to say uh, I have to say that I really enjoyed the interview with Dr. Uwe Fitzlaff I did too there's so much that I learned just from talking to someone who spends every single day with this right things you don't think about yeah yeah Okay, so I hope you enjoy. See you. Today we have a great guest. Thank you, Uwe Fitzler, for taking your time and talking to us. For us as students, it's always interesting how people get where they are today. So how did you end up studying bats? So this was actually by chance. So I did something different before when I did my diploma thesis. It was, I was working with the enteric nervous system in the gut, you know, it was histology and something completely different. But afterwards I wanted to continue with that work, but there was no funding available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so actually I had to look for something else and so I applied for it. Ed, which was advertising this PhD uh, project uh, to work with bats in Munich, and I went there and I got the job, and it was okay for me to. I stayed with it for the rest of my life so far. Wow, that's a, that's a complete chance thing. Yes, it was. Of course, yeah, it was my decision to apply there, of course, and I liked it, and I had several opportunities. But I said, well, this was bad. This project this, this, this sounded exciting, and this was something I could think of doing. So I went there and uh, <clears throat> and actually I liked it and it, there was always a possibility to continue this work. Okay. It's of course also somewhat chance that sometimes you have no funding or mm-hmm. something else, but there was also funding available and I could continue and I liked it. Mm-hmm. And it was a nice group, it was a nice environment and you could work and uh, always found it interesting and so I stayed with it. It's funny to me how often I hear scientists tell me that the way they got into their field is by complete chance and that Mm -hmm. the door just somehow opened. So it's almost hard to plan uh, in advance for a young scientist where they're going to find themselves in 10 years because everybody I talk to who's established in their careers seems to have a very similar story of these chance events that lead them to their end goals. So that's really nice. Yeah, of course, you have your preferences, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if I wouldn't have been interested to do electrophysiology or neurophysiology in the auditory system, especially with bats, then I wouldn't have applied for this job, of course. Yeah, sure. So you always have your interests. But uh, within this interest, I think which particular field you 
finally mm -hmm. end up this might be chance actually sure yeah so and um, now you work for quite some years with bats so what fascinates you about them and what makes them the perfect organism to study for your kind of research questions well yeah bats have several interesting features of course they do echolocate or most or many bats do so and this is an interesting feature other animals might not have mm -hmm. or if they have they are more complicated to study so think of whales yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> right whales which also do echolocate which would be really a hardship if you want to study them <laughs> yeah. so with bats it's much easier yeah i always find it fascinating to work with them so there are many different aspects you could uh, investigate in this in, in bats and yeah this was something that kept me going all the time. Actually, there were always new questions, so you can shift from pure research on, on echolocation to more communication. You know, bats have also the... to uh, also communicate a lot. They are not very good echo... not only very good echolocators, but they are very social animals. So mm -hmm. they live in larger groups, and they have a lot of social interactions, and they communicate a lot. They have a large variety of communication sounds. And so there are different aspects of the auditory system or auditory processing which you can study in bats from echolocation to processing of communication calls, vocal learning, something like this. You know, there are different aspects and there's a lot of work. Right to do and it's never get boring actually. Fair enough, so it's the diversity of questions. Yeah, it's the diversity of questions, yeah. that's why, because bats are so diverse. Right, yeah, you know, okay. There are a large number of different bat species, so you can have a lot of very different bats. Right. Which have very different feeding types and habits and, and live in different environments and do different things, have different types of echolocation, you know. Fair enough. Now, uh, to switch gears a little bit, one of my favorite philosophy papers of all time is, uh, maybe you know it, Thomas Nagel's How to Be a Bat. In it, Thomas Nagel states that an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism, something that it is like for the organism to be itself. So he states that we cannot explain consciousness or what it is like to be a bat by these objective reductionist means. So in other words, we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to echolocate. Yet, I am going to task you with answering this impossible question, or at least approximating it. Now, when a bat goes about its daily life, when it goes out to fly, to go for a hunt, what do you think they see and feel and perceive? What is their environment like? So that's an interesting question because a lot of research is actually going on about this. I would guess <coughs> bats perceive things very different than we do. I think you cannot compare vision and echolocation one by one, right. actually. So the first thing is, of course, that the bat only sees things when it emits an echolocation call, so it's not continuous, but it's stroboscopic. Right, so it's more like a snapshot yeah, it's than more a like a snapshot. Mm -hmm. But the point is that that recent research showed that the echolocation system has not a very good spatial resolution. Okay. <laughs> so it's not actually like taking a snapshot when you turn on the light and off mm -hmm. again. You turn on the light and you immediately see the whole spatial surrounding of a room. You know, you know where things are in the room. That's not the case with echolocation. So, so it's very directional and the spatial resolution is very bad. So what the bat has to do is actually focus on things sequentially or compare other parameters like timing uh, intensity differences which would uh, the, echolocation, the, the echoes come back to the bat so that it can guess from which direction echoes come from. But it is not a good spatial overall resolution which it can take as one snapshot so it's very difficult to compare actually it's not like opening your eyes with a certain mm -hmm. frequency you know it's a totally different perceptual domain i would guess so in other words you would agree with thomas nagel that the yes. question yes. okay i would guess so <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's quite fascinating because a lot of bats are insectivore yeah. and insects are normally not as big as other animals <laughs> to, <laughs> to pose it vaguely. So there has to be some kind of system which has a better resolution or how is that done? Well, not in the spatial domain, actually. It depends on what you want to have. If you want to discriminate two objects that are close by, or if you want just want to follow one object. And if you want to follow one object, it's important to have a good temporal resolution, actually. You can I estimate the distance of the insect by judging the travel time of the echo. Mm -hmm. You know, the echo delay, so this is indicating the distance towards the objects. You can indicate the wind, or you can perceive the, the, the changes that are induced by the wing beats of the insects, perhaps. And so it's a totally different task. Mm -hmm. You do not have to follow two insects, but only one. And you have to only follow, focus on one insect and try to track it and eventually collect it, catch it. I see. Okay. Um, you also had a publication with Dr. Catherine Pukler. There you investigated <coughs> the multimodal interaction between uh, vision and echolocation under different okay. light conditions. So under which aspect of bad life is that important to have this multimodal integration? Well, I think that's something tip people typically do not think about. I think many bats have a very good have very good vision actually. So they have large eyes, or at least the bats we did this experiments with are fruit eating bats from South America and they have very large eyes. So it's bio it's uh, it's not that they are blind. Mm -hmm. So you might say blind is a bat. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this might hold true for some Insectivore or insect eating bats with a very, very small eyes, but there are other bats that are more visually guided, and since this might be also important for these bats actually to, to see some of the fruits that they're feeding on. And they also fly under dim light conditions, it's not so, so that the bats always fly in total darkness. They can, of course, they can fly in total darkness and rely exclusively on the echolocation system. But if there are dim light conditions and some light is available, I think they can use it for orientation and to guide their navigation, especially for the long-term navigation. So they want to navigate around landscapes and fly from a point, maybe from the roosting cave to some area, area where they feed on, on fruits and where they know there are trees that have ripe fruits. So they can do this also being guided by vision. And so it was reasonable to assume that vision and echolocation might interact in a way. Mm -hmm. So that there might be some multimodal interactions, actually, and that's how we came towards this project to test if these both uh, sensory domains influence each other, like they do in other mammals. Right. And also, right. <coughs> this was an interesting question because we, you might think, well, bats are so specialized on echolocation, the visual system doesn't add anything yeah, and they exactly. totally neglect it. Yeah. But we could show that it's actually not the case. Right. So they were sensitive to visual influences and vision and echolocation in a way influenced each other. So that's a, some sort of cancel off if there are contradictive information mm -hmm. and they also might add up if there is uh, the same information available from both systems. In humans, we know that vision is yeah. the dominant sense, and like you said, when, when there's a sensory conflict, mm -hmm. vision usually wins, right? And um, how dynamic is this weighting of these sensory modalities in bats? Is echolocation always dominant? Is it in some species? And how well can they switch? So this is an, <laughs> as well an interesting as a difficult to answer question. So I don't know how it is in different in, in, uh, in other species. We only looked at the species we have here. Mm -hmm. To answer this question, what is the dominant sensory domain, vision or echolocation? It's difficult to answer, but this was one of the points we had to discuss in our publication, actually. I think vision has a very strong influence. Okay. That's so surprising. Yes. I never thought of I always no, had this. But I think, well, echolocation is somewhat dominant in terms that they might mainly use echolocation, but if there's visual information, then it's 
uh, it has a big influence actually. Okay. It's not the way that they could totally neglect it. Right. But they say, well, if even there's a small visual, uh, some, uh, some uh, visual information available, then it has a strong influence. They'll actually. use it, right? Yeah, okay. they can use it and they sure does, I think. Bats, sorry, highly misunderstood animals. Yeah, but this <laughs> might also depend strongly on the on the on the species you investigate. Right. It might be different in other species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's of course, if you have very small eyes and vision does not play such a big role in your everyday life as a bat, yes. then probably you might. So it would be interesting to investigate also other species. Yes. Which might be more specialized in another way. I think the bat species we investigated are more generalist species, you know. Okay. So it's not so that they're so specialized on a certain type of prey mm-hmm. or environment or so. I think they take what they can get in mm-hmm. terms of food. So they can eat fruit, but they can also catch insects, you know. Okay. They're more an omnivorous So the generalist species. among yeah. the specialists. Yes, it's <laughs> possible actually. <laughs> Okay, so now let's uh, talk a little bit about um, the social repertoire of bats. What kind of communication signals do we find? And how does that differ between species as well? Well, I cannot answer the question how this differs between species. I would guess it does not so much because every species uh, has the same requirements in terms of communication. You have always a mother-infant communication. You have mating calls, maybe, if you want to attract females as a male. And there are also always the same social uh, tasks. You maybe have aggressions, and there's uh, some fights between males or some fights between females about places where you can hang or roost in a cave. So I think the requirements are quite the same for a lot of species, so the communication signals might also be quite similar. And actually, as I look at as far as you can say, you look at the repertoire of bats, so I think many features of communication calls of bats are not so so much different from communication calls in other mammalian species. Really? So there are many similarities. So you have appeasement calls and you have aggressive calls, and these aggressive calls are more harsh and rough sounding, like they are in other species. Or like even in humans, in humans too. Yeah, in humans, yeah. if you shout, you raise your voice and you have a harsh tone, and that's the same in aggressive calls in bats. So wow. I think as you talk about communication, in a lot of species, the same requirements are there, and so the calls also are quite similar in structure and you find elements that you can find in, in, in many different species. And another interesting thing is so if you look in terms of echolocation bats, so this is an ultrasonic range. You typically don't hear the echolocation calls of bats mm-hmm. in most species. But you can well hear the fundamental frequencies, this is the lowest frequencies of the communication calls, especially in an aggressive content, uh, context. So they are well detectable by the human ear. Okay, that is very interesting. So they are on a completely different frequency range, actually, than echolocation, because they have very different requirements. Right. You know? That's interesting, and yet they're best tuned to the higher frequency It's the auditory ranges. system. Yeah. Yeah, it depends also on the bed. You know, if okay. there are specialization in the echolocation call design, then you might find specializations in the auditory system as well. So they have bats that use very or long constant frequency echolocation calls with a very narrow band calls, and then you can find specializations in the auditory system which can detect this narrow band frequencies in the range of the echolocation calls, but you have also bats which use more broader calls in terms of the frequency contents and then of course they have not this fine specializations in the auditory pathway that they over uh, represent certain frequencies or something like that. They are more generalist in these terms also. Okay, fair enough. Now uh, I understand what makes bats, the, the, the species you study so interesting is that they exhibit vocal learning. Can you talk a little bit about what this is for those of well, this is still discussed if bats really uh, exhibit vocal learning, so I, uh, I think that's not the final decision 
take on this, but this are ongoing, is ongoing research. Well, vocal learning I have to find in many species. Most or many species, maybe it's, it's, it's said too much, so at least humans have it. Right. But there are also other mammals like toothed whales where it is reported, but it's of course best known from songbirds. Mm -hmm. The example of songbird tells you that uh, the juvenile bird has to learn its species-specific song from a tutor. It imitates the song and thereby learns to, to make it perfect that it sounds like the uh, species-specific song. And this is something you find, of course, in humans, but this is also reported to be found in bats because they have this communication repertoire and it's thought that they also, or there are reports on that that their communication calls develop somewhat over the juvenile development to match the frequency content and structure of those of the juveniles. So that was the idea behind, and the idea <coughs> that's what makes it so interesting at least is that there are many other animals that can be used in a lab in controlled studies like mice which do not show this behavior. You know? right. And again, if you have this behavior in toothed whales, then it's a, a model system that's very difficult to study, and this holds, mm -hmm. holds true for, 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 for uh, primates. Actually, sure. You, you know, can't just keep a whale in a lab. Them and maybe you don't want to do experiments out of ethical reasons or something. Definitely. So people were interested to find a model system in mammals that are similar or at least comparable complex to what mm -hmm. songbirds might do. So to what extent can what we learn in bats about vocal learning or other um, uh, lower systems be translated to humans? Well. <coughs> at least for for <coughs> for mammals, they use the same substrate actually, so they have similar brains actually, or comparable brains. And one, or typically, you say, well, that's the molecular mechanisms behind vocal learning should be the same. Right. So this is this. They have the same genes that are responsible, or that are thought to be underlying the mechanism of vocal learning uh, as humans, actually. You find them in many different, uh, other different species. So, so you have the same substrate you can study. And therefore, one might think that by studying the mechanisms in bats, you can also learn about humans, of course. Um, <coughs> so there was this other publication, I think with Dr. Greite it was, where you um, studied the auditory cortex uh -huh. and how it, um, how bats use it to localize objects. And there we read an interesting term which we didn't know before. <coughs> and maybe you could explain <laughs> what does it mean to be chronotopically organized? <laughs> Chronotopic, yeah, this refers to the ability the requirements that the bats have to judge the delay time of the return echo because so they emit a call and the call is reflected by a target, possibly an insect or can also be an obstacle that the bats want to avoid. And so then the echo is reflected back to the bat and then of course the bat can estimate the range or the distance of the target or the obstacle by measuring the time because sound speed is the constant. Now, yeah. you know well when it takes so, uh, so milliseconds and then the object might be a few meters away or it might be long, far away when it takes more time, of course. <coughs> and chronotopically organized means that there are, especially in, a, in, a, in the auditory cortex of many bats, there are specialized neurons that measure this time. So these neurons have a special property, they only fire or get active when there's a certain time delay between an outgoing call and an echo. That's so they're attuned to a certain time delay of, uh, of call and echo. And these neurons are um, organized in the brain in, in terms of a map. Kind of like the somatotopic organization, yes, like but in this case. Yeah, 
it's like a map, so we have a chronotopic map or a map of target distance, actually. That is truly So there are regions yeah. in the auditory cortex which contain neurons that only fire when there's a short time delay between call and echo. And on the other side of the cortex, uh, there are neurons that fire uh, when there's a long delay between call and echo. So this is why it's called a chronotopically organized map or a chronotopic map of target delay, so uh, echo delay. We can really imagine this like different columns of neurons which respond to different delay times. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a 2D representation on the cortical surface actually. You have area in the auditory cortex which respond to this delay and the areas that respond to another delay. So it's orderly organized in a topographic fashion. It's so cool, in my opinion, that you find that in different brain regions for different sensory modalities again and again. Yeah, yeah. that's a very interesting thing in bats. And another interesting thing is that this is an, an, a neural map that has to be computed, actually. Yeah. So if you look at a map of this somatotopic map or retinotopic map, this has this map-like organization or the 2D space organization already on the sensory epithelium, which is not true for the target range map, the delay map, because this has to be computed. Mm. The cochlea has no, uh, has, is not, uh, has not a organization of echo delay. Mm -hmm. This is something you have to measure in your okay. brain and you have to compute it. And so it's a computational map actually, which is a little it bit different. It does make it different. Yeah, it makes yeah. it different and makes it also interesting. Right. Because how is it computed and right. how are the principles that organize the whole thing. So um, we also heard and saw some nice pictures of uh, field work you did in Trinidad and Tobago. Can you tell us a little bit of how it is done? So how do scientists so do field work? Well, this might be disappointing. So it was actually not really field work. <laughs> we went there to collect bats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was no research project going on. We simply had to collect fresh bats for our colony in Munich. And for those of our audience who don't know how bat collection works, oh. how do you collect a bat? Yeah, first you need a permit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you have to say this. this you cannot go there uh, and to go to Trinidad and just collect them. Of course, you need a permit. Yeah, you know, that you don't have to collect bats that are endangered, endangered species or such like. Okay, so now but you, you have, have a permit, then you have to know where the bats live. You want to collect, so then you have to decide what is the best method. So if this bat maybe lives in a cave, then it might be a good idea to put a net in front of the entrance of the cave and collect when they, then when they're flying out, or. <coughs> If you can also take a hand net actually and walk into the cave and try to collect as many bats as you can get when they're flying around you. I imagine this like catching butterflies. Yeah, it's like catching butterflies, but just just standing in a big cloud of bats actually oh flying my. around you. So um, at these trips you see the habitats of the bats where mm -hmm. they naturally live in. Does these uh, do these impressions also impact your laboratory work? Yes, of course. Sometimes, and sorry. How sorry? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you see well how the bats behave in the, in the environment. You ask yourself, well, how can they do this? How can they fly so quickly in complete darkness and navigate through very small in a very small space? You know, they avoid obstacles while not even lowering their flight speed. And this is something they they are actually it's unbelievable sometimes how when you see how fast they fly through dense forest and avoid to crash into the trees and thereby also being able to uh, detect prey mm -hmm. and catch prey. So this is really amazing. And so then it comes up to the idea of maybe you can create stimuli that are similar to those things they experience in the environment and try to create naturalistic stimuli that you can use to probe the auditory system mm -hmm. of the bat and find out how this works actually. 
So can we say that your laboratory work is inspired somehow by those? In, yeah, in terms of studies that investigate flow field and dynamic stimuli in, in complex scenes, yes they are actually. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just to finish off with a few more general questions for you. So as a advisor of graduate students, you've seen, I'm sure your fair share of mm -hmm. graduate students come and go. Um, for those of our listeners that are perhaps young women who are interested in neuroscience and want to stay in the field, what is the advice you would give them in research and in um, pursuing their research interests? Well, this is difficult to say, actually. I think general-wise for a young person, not only to, for, for young women, actually, you have to make up your mind what you are really interested in. I think that's a prerequisite. So it wouldn't make sense just to select a, a field of research because it might be something that will be successful in the future or you might think, well, there are many jobs available. I think doing science or trying to stay in science really means that you have to spend a lot of time and invest a lot of efforts in your work. You know, this is only possible if that what you are doing is really interesting for you. So I would guess it's very good to try as early as possible while you are at the university to find topics, fields of research which are interesting as either more in neuroscience or in ecology and if you think of neuroscience would to go to the sensory system or something like this and then make up your mind, try to get as much information you can get, try to find out who's working in this field at your university and then try to get an appointment in the lab, maybe do a practical course and then make up your mind what is really important for you. So be determined. Yes. If I had I to think that that's up. the most important point because mm -hmm. you have to do a lot of work and you have to invest a lot of time right. and it's not very well paid sometimes. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so, yeah, if you compare maybe a young person after finishing the university that starts an appointment with a big company, so yeah. you earn yeah much more money actually right. you can get as a PhD student. So if you sit there and complain where well, you only earn half as much as my former colleague who is now working with uh, VW or something like this or as an <laughs> engineer, or, yes, you have to be devoted. And because it can be actually, frustrating at times. Yeah, it can be frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Passionate, uh, being passionate seems to be key. Yeah. So, what are the most fascinating developments, in your opinion, in neuroscience right now? Right now, in terms of, well, if I think of things that are interesting for me, I think it's the possibility now for chronically implanting small transponders and transmitters to record neural activity while animal systems are behaving in the natural environments. So this was not possible maybe 20 years ago. So if you would want to try to put a transmitter on a bed actually, so this was very heavy weight and beds are typically quite small so they couldn't carry it. But nowadays things become smaller and smaller and smaller and you can put on microphones and beds so that they carry a microphone and you record the echolocation behavior in a natural environment. And this is really fascinating, and I think this will something that will become even better in the future. Okay. Because it's going on and on, and things become even more smaller mm -hmm. and offer you more channels you can record simultaneously from. And so, at least in terms of bad research, but also from other fields, this is a very promising right. situation, actually. Definitely. Where you can leave the lab and go to the actual environment and see what are animals really doing there? It's and a how lot the more brain works in this in real situations. How is neural processing there? What are the actual stimuli a bat has to cope with there? 
So it's mm -hmm. not an artificial situation in a lab anymore, but you can really see, well, these are the signals, maybe the reflected echoes a bat really perceives in this situation because I have a microphone that is uh, put on the back or the head of the bat, and you say, wow, this is different than from what I have thought before. Yeah, but does this also bring up new challenges in your opinion? <coughs> new challenges? Because, I'm sorry, for me it sounded like it makes fin things more easy. Well, things are never easy. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, new challenges maybe, yes, it opens up new questions you have to pursue. Maybe this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. challenge. Okay, that you have to cope with all the things that you know. Mm -hmm. Things might be different that you have expected. Okay. And maybe a challenge is to, to accept this and throw old oh. ideas overboard and uh, say, well, I have been wrong, we all have been wrong, things are different, we have now to go in this and this direction and it's not how we thought it would be and we have to accept this because these are the measurements and this is a real things that the bats perceive in a complex situation and now this is something we have to use in our experiments. So the challenge is for, is, is for scientists to swallow their pride if maybe their yes, um, maybe. old research mm. yeah. it doesn't turn out to be, yeah. it doesn't stand up to the more ethologically yeah. natural Yeah, maybe they, they recognize that things were too artificial actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the brain might behave or process things different like they have thought before. Yeah, this was it from our side. So thank you so much for uh, being here with us today and talking to us about um, the life of bats. Yeah. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to your talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have to thank you for giving me the opportunity to answer your questions here. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.